Hey, friends. Uh, welcome. Thanks for being back with us. Uh, we're grateful to have you continue through Exodus with us. Um, we move today into the 33rd chapter. Uh, you know, a little bit of a transition, a little bit of a bridge passage today, and I think you'll be able to see how it both looks backwards and forwards. Uh, I'll read it for you, then we'll try to unpack some of it. The Lord said to Moses, go leave this place, you and the people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, go to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hussites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, or I would consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard the harsh words, they mourned, and no one put on ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I go up among you, I would consume you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do to you. Therefore the Israelites stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So just a really interesting text. God calls the people to move forward, to continue their journey, but I think as we as we said in closing yesterday, Michael, this is they now carry a new identity. They are no longer just the rescued people of Egypt. They are the rescued people of Egypt who have turned their back on God, who have um, been disobedient, who have been unfaithful. And, and they're going to bear that reality now for a while. And, and God, it is always dangerous when we paint God with a human-type brush, but the text gives us the impression that, that God is not over this. God is not past this. God is um, continues to be displeased with them. And, and we have this very interesting, first a, a promise— Go, I'm going to drive out the people. I'm going to give you the land. I've said that I would do it, and I'm going to do it. But then that's followed with this really interesting warning. Um, if I go with you, I'm going to destroy you. If if I know that if I'm around you, you're going to anger me, and that anger is going to lash out at you. I, I think... I don't know what the appropriate illustration here is. Maybe that day when you're a parent that you just tell your child, look, we need, or maybe you've had that moment with your spouse where it's just, we can't be in the same room right now. Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know what's like this, but God in God's self-awareness and holiness is seems legitimately worried that the people will break the last straw, and God will lash out at them. I think it's a fascinating passage. It's one of those texts where the repetition, which is likely related to some of the textual sources, and we could dive into some of that, sure. but the repetition here, Clint, of the stiff-necked people is purposely uh, emphasized for the sake of the reader. It, it's clear 
that we are discovering here, this ongoing relationship with God that is moving. And I, I think when we read and study scripture, we maybe make a mistake being so far ahead in history. We look back on texts like this, we imagine ourselves in the midst of a story like this one, and we find ourselves in a position where we, the reader, thinks, you know, it's all flat, that there's no character development, or that the story is essentially the same people and the same God and just different stuff happens, sort of like a human pinball machine. That's not the case. This text makes that clear. Mm -hmm. This is a living relationship between God and God's people. And, And here we are. We're engaging with this reality where the people have committed a sin, and it's not the sin itself. It's not as if they, you know, took one more piece of candy from the candy jar than they should have. It's the infraction of the holy relationship. It's the fact that God gave them this meaningful relationship. God rescued them from their oppressors. God said, you can trust me and hold me. And then when the people broke that, then all of this has been thrown up into the air and it's being reformed and refashioned on the other side of it. And it's striking to me the very ornamentation which should have represented their rescue from Egypt now comes off as a representation of the sackcloth and ashes of those who have defied the God who saved them, who have defied the one who carried them out of Egypt and gave them that ornamentation in the front end. And by the way, the same thing that they threw into the fire and out popped the the golden idol to use the joke. So I, I think that here... We see a relationship, Clint, at its in a real meaningful way, a relationship between God and God's people, and it's, you know, it's not a simple or or very even pleasant image in some ways. Yeah, and I want to give the people a little bit of credit, Michael. They seem to realize that. You know, if you've ever had the moment where you've let somebody down, you know, that terrible moment where your mom or dad or someone you respect tells you, I'm very disappointed in you. Verse 4 here, when the people heard the harsh words, they mourned. They were grieved. You know, it it, it is not—sometimes it's not anger that is the the most painful part of getting something wrong. It's that knowing that you've disappointed somebody. It's knowing that you've let somebody down Mm. and that that they now—your actions— have caused them pain. And so the people mourn. And then the very interesting thing here, no one put on ornaments. In fact, they took their ornaments off. Um, If you've been with us from the beginning, hopefully this rings a couple of bells. Remember that the idea of ornaments we first saw when the people were leaving Egypt and they took with them the Egyptians' jewelry. So those... Those very things were a sign of God's victory, a sign of this promise, a sign of God's work among the people. And then very much closer to this story, the last time we saw something like ornaments mentioned, the people were taking off their earrings to allow Aaron to build the golden calf, to to cast the calf. And so here you have literally a kind of stripping of the reminders, a, a kind of um yeah that idea of mourning the idea that they they take off all of the the stuff all of the facade and they spend some time with the truth the heart of the matter that they've been unfaithful and that God at least for the meantime 
is putting some space between them and himself, though the promise still stands. That That's clear from the front, and I think there's a reason that comes first in the text. But um, I do think there's a sense here in which maybe the people continue to have to live with the consequences of their actions. Yeah, let's take for just a moment here a closer look at verse 2. I just think it's worth noting um, that while there continues to be difficult language here for the people, let us remember this promise that God's going to send an angel. These opponents, the, these people, if you remember just recently, they were actually celebrating and mocking the Israelites because of the disarray of the camp, because of the wanton behavior. So here the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, all of these are going to be driven out, God says, and then the people will go into a land flowing with milk of hun- milk and honey. And, and then th- this image, which I just think is very interesting in its scope within the biblical context, but within the biblical witness, this idea that God says in verse 3, I will not go up among you, is really interesting because think of even the story of Genesis and the garden and the fact that God is with Adam and Eve, this this idea that we've seen before in the Old Testament scripture that God is with God's people, that God desires to have real connected, even on the ground kind of relationship. And so here, part of the wedge that's been divided, may I remind you again of the garden image, what happens at the end of sin? Well, there's a blockade put. There's a flaming sword so that you can't get in to the garden anymore. Here, there's this reality that God says that the people would be consumed if he would be in their midst. I I just think, Clint, that there's there's a story being told here about the Israelites, but there's a larger biblical story being told about the cost of human sinfulness. This isn't the first time we've seen humans in this condition, and it's not the first time the biblical story has told this story, and that is significant. I I, I think that this story has many layers of meaning, and you're going to find something to connect with at every layer. I I don't want to sound, you know, I I don't want to sound overly confident here, but this is the kind of thing I do think could easily be missed in a casual reading of this text. It it could easily sound like God is punishing them, like like God is saying, well, I'm not going with you. God has made provision. The angel is going. Moses is there. The promise is, is intact. I will give you this land. Notice that it, it's not punishment. It's actually protection. God says, if I was with you, I, I think that we're not there. In other words, the the you are not ready for me in your presence yet. Your sinfulness, your disobedience, your waywardness, I, I can't be close to you in that way. It is dangerous for you. And I, I think, you know, we could read this as if it's saying God abandoned the people, but I, I, don't, I, don't, think that's, I don't think that's the message here at all. I think God is saying, our relationship is not at a place yet where you can be in my presence safely. Y- y- your actions have brought danger to the community 
if I'm that close to you. And so I'm going to keep my distance so that you're not consumed. It's actually, in some strange way, a measure of protection for the people that God is stepping back and giving them some time, giving them some space. But it, but it's not abandonment. They're not just off in the wilderness on their own. There's an angel before them, the promise. God says, I'm going to drive the people out. Nothing about that has changed but there is this new, there is this new painful and difficult wrinkle in the relationship between God and Israel. So, Clint, I think for just a moment, it may be worth, and, and this is this is a little bit more of a sermon than it is uh, interpretation of the text. But I think that there's something deeply meaningful in this language of the stiff-necked people. And the older I get and the longer I have the privilege of working with people, you know, there's a way in which when you work with people, you get to learn something of yourself as well. And, you know, I certainly see this in greater measure in myself is part of the human condition is being stiff-necked. There's something to uh, that determination that this is the way it's going to be, that, that stubbornness, that you know, maybe at its best, it's a form of perseverance and long suffering. But oftentimes, uh, our stiff neckness helped us for some period of time until it doesn't, and then it becomes one of our greatest adversaries. People who are unwilling to do something new or to accept a a, a change in life, uh, maybe even a change that you know they don't get to choose. I mean, there's just many moments in life in which God asks something of us. And because of our own stalwart, determined persistence to continue on our own path, we find ourselves feeling, as here the people are described, as being God-forsaken, God having provided, but forsaking them of his presence. I mean, I just think there's something deeply spiritually insightful about this text. And that's, like I said, that's more sermon than it is interpretation. But. Well, I, yeah, but I do, I do think that's in the text, Michael, and, and imagine that from an almost literal perspective. What can stiff-necked people not do? They can't bow, right? Yeah, they, right. they can't, they, they won't lower themselves. They won't humble themselves. They, they refuse to bow down before God and to accept God's wishes and God's will. So um, I I think that's a very, um, it's just, it's a very illustrative, it's a very interesting illustration, um, one that you can almost paint literally, um, which it's not, we, I don't think in our culture, in our day and age, you know, we would use stubborn, we would use pigheaded, we might use, but Literally, in this case, to be stiff-necked means they have refused to bow in worship and humility before God. I mean, that that's almost a verbatim, literal assessment of their condition. That it's, it's really good. Well, and, you know, what's interesting about that is they are stiff-necked as it relates to the God who rescues them from Egypt, but they're more than willing to bow for the calf that gets fashioned out of gold. It's it's amazing how the human mind can self-justify what's worthy of worship and how often that justification is not the God who's been faithful, but is rather whatever the shiny, promising thing of the day is. And there's really no more contemporary 
reflection upon the human experience. We're, we're doing that today. It's happening in our own hearts, in our own communities. I mean, that that is the function of sin in the human condition. And so we, as the people of God, continue to seek to try to learn how to do that bowing to the right God, as opposed to the gods that would buy for our attention. Yeah, so we will continue a um, little bit of change of pace. We sort of start in some new directions as of tomorrow, and uh, hope you can be with us. Uh, uh, appreciate your time today, and and uh, grateful. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow.